morning, Chapel family. I was reading in my Bible this morning about the special reward that is for those who attend church the day after Christmas. <laughs> so for those of you who are online, I'm sorry. No soup for you. All right. Well, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. And uh, we're going to continue in our series in the book of Acts. As believers, we know that we cannot do ministry at all apart from the power of God. We can't do it in our own strength. Which is, of course, why Jesus in Acts 1 told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. He knew that they weren't going to be able to do the work that we see them doing in the book of Acts without the power of the Holy Spirit. We know in John 15, 5, that Jesus said, you can't do, and it was pointed out to me by someone in between services, that the actual literal rendering is, you can't do one thing apart from me, not one thing. Zechariah 4, 6 says, not by might, nor by power, not by your might, not by your power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Having said that, that does not mean that we are to sit back passively and do nothing. <laughs> God calls us to work and to work hard, especially at developing the gift that he has given us. The Apostle Paul said this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the gift that you have. Don't neglect it. You have a gift. Don't neglect that gift. Develop it. Leaders, need to learn how to lead. You gotta learn that. Some people say, well, you're born with it. You still have to learn how to lead. Teachers, trust me, you gotta work hard at teaching. Those with gifts of administration have to learn how to delegate and organize. Those with gifts of helps and counseling have to learn how to sympathize and, and, and need insight for how to help people. It takes hard work and development. And if we don't do that, Paul warns us, we can become ineffective in the use of our spiritual gift. We can become ineffective, it's possible. But this morning's message is not about the use of our spiritual gifts. This morning's message is about the proclamation of the gospel. And my point is this. In the same way, it can become possible to be unfaithful and ineffective in the use of our spiritual gift we can also be unfaithful and ineffective in our proclamation of the gospel. There is a crisis in this church and in the Church of America, but it's not what you think it is. The biggest crisis is knowing the gospel, first of all, and then second of all, learning how to faithfully and effectively proclaim it tell it, teach it, speak it to others. 
I've been over membership and baptism here at the chapel for seven years, and I always sit down with people and I ask them the same question when they're gonna become a member, whether they're gonna be baptized, I ask them, if you were to sit down with an unbeliever and the unbeliever were to ask you, what do you believe? What is this gospel that you believe? What would you tell them? And church, you would be shocked at the answers that I've gotten over the years from people. Some people just don't know. I mean, you're coming to be baptized, but you you don't know the gospel. Some people respond by saying, well, I would just tell them to just believe. That's what it's all about, just believe. Okay, (laughs) believe what? Other people will say, well, I would tell them to invite Jesus into their heart. Okay, I remember as a kid sitting in Sunday school with my Sunday school teacher telling me that it was important that we invite Jesus into our hearts and I had no idea what she was talking about. I just pictured this little man inside my heart. Some people have said to me, well, I wouldn't tell them the gospel, I would just tell them my testimony. You know, I, I was going through life, it's a difficult time, life was hard, it was tough, and I started going to church, things started getting better, and that's why I'm here. There's a crisis. How do we faithfully and effectively proclaim the gospel? We have a great example of that here in Acts chapter three from Peter. It's a masterful sermon. And so what we're gonna do this week and next week is we're gonna look at this sermon And we're gonna see how Peter faithfully and effectively proclaims the gospel. We're gonna learn from him. I got five points for this morning, and the next week we'll cover the rest. Point number one, when faithfully and effectively proclaiming the gospel, emphasize spiritual need. Emphasize spiritual need. Look at how Peter does this, and I'll I'll explain how he does it because it looks at first that that's not what he's doing, but it is. Starting in verse one. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, and as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, rise and walk. And we'll stop right there for now. If you were to ask the typical non-Christian, the typical non-church-going, unbelieving person why Jesus Christ has been such an influential figure throughout the past 2,000 years, no doubt one of the typical answers that you would get is because he loved the poor and cared for the poor. The outcast those who had nothing, he went around providing for him, for them. But did you know that that actually was not the emphasis of Jesus' ministry, hardly at all? Caring for the material and the physical needs of people? I wanna read to you a few passages. These are called the I have come passages. 
and they explain why Jesus came and what his ministry was all about. Here's the first one. Mark chapter one, verses 36 through 39. And Simon said to him, everyone is looking for you. They were looking for him because he had been healing people and more people wanted to be healed. More people wanted bread, whatever it was that he was doing, miraculously providing bread or healing people. More people want that, that stuff. <laughs> Listen to what Jesus says in verse 38. He said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I have come. I have come to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to meet people's spiritual needs, because that is their most important needs. That is why I have come. John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly, talking about spiritual life, eternal life. That's why I have come. John 12, 46, I have come as a light into the world so that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. He's not talking about physical light. He's talking about spiritual light so that people can see the truth. In Matthew chapter 26, you have the one, one place in the gospels where the poor are brought up. A woman comes with a very expensive alabaster jar of ointment and she pours it on Christ, very expensive, and the Bible says that the disciples were indignant. How could you let this happen? We could have sold this ointment and given it to the poor. And what did Jesus say? You'll always have the poor. You won't always have me. Someone might object and say, well, what about all the healings that Jesus did? He healed the lame. He went around healing from town to town to town to town. That's not just spiritual needs. That's meeting people's physical needs. Yes, but do you know that those healings, those miracles, do you know what they're called all throughout the gospel? They're called signs. Signs. That's because those miracles where Jesus met people's material and physical needs were meant to be a sign that pointed to a greater need that they had. So when Jesus, in uh, uh, John 6, he feeds the masses, the, the 5,000, what was that to point them to? It was to point to the fact that he, he is the bread of life. He is the one who satisfies. He is the one who sustains, not just physical food, but spiritual food, him, the bread of life. When he healed the blind man in John chapter nine, there's a man who was born blind and he heals them. And what does he say at the end of that story? He rebukes the Pharisees and he says, because you say that you can see, your blindness remains. In other words, you're so proud, you're so arrogant, you think that you can see the truth apart from me and because that's what you're doing, you will remain blind. The whole thing was a spiritual lesson on spiritual blindness. That sign, that miracle that he did was a sign about a spiritual lesson. And that's what Peter is doing here. He heals the beggar, he heals the beggar, but it is for a greater purpose. And it is to show that Jesus Christ is the one who saves us and that they are to put their hope in him. It's not, he doesn't just do it so that, that the beggar can say, hey, great, you're healed. It's for a greater purpose. Now someone might say, well, what about the passage in Matthew 25? It says this, for I was hungry and you gave me food. 
I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. Isn't that Jesus exhorting his disciples, his, his, his people who follow him, to, to go to the world and to feed them and to clothe them and to give them drink and to visit them when they're sick? Isn't that what Jesus is doing there? No. That is not an exhortation for believers to meet the physical needs of unbelievers. That is an exhortation, catch this, for unbelievers to meet the physical needs of believers. That's why he says, if you do this to the least of these, or then he says, my little ones, my disciples. In other words, he's warning unbelievers, the way that you treat my disciples, feeding them, taking care of them, visiting them when they're sick, that's the way that you're treating me. And if you treat them well, you're treating me well. And if you treat my disciples poorly, you're treating me poorly. That's what that passage is saying. Now don't walk out of here saying, well, Josh told us that it's un unimportant to help the poor. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the emphasis and the goal is to ultimately meet the spiritual needs of people, their need for salvation. Amen. We adorn the doctrine of God, as Titus says, by helping people in every way that we can. But the emphasis and the goal is their spiritual salvation, and that's Peter's emphasis here. So that's the first thing, emphasize spiritual need. Second thing, lower yourself. at the workplace, in the pulpit, in the classroom, wherever you are, when proclaiming the gospel, lower yourself. This is what Peter does, watch. Verse seven. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God, and all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who had sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had just happened. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Wow, they are pumped they all, their eyes are fixated on Peter and John. Look at these men. Look how amazing they are. Look at what they did. Look at what Peter says in verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? You have to admire Peter's humility here. It's not us. It's not our power, it's not our strength, it's not our piety, it's not because we do all these great things and we're such holy people that God used us. This is because of the sovereign decision and power and will of Jesus Christ. He goes on to explain. Church, the best of men are men at best and sinful at that. Do you know that a person's greatest strength can be their greatest weakness? 
For example, there are some people who are so merciful, so patient. Drives me nuts. Because I can't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not there. They are. And they're merciful and they're patient and they're kind. And I'm like, dude, why don't you just nail that guy? And but they're kind and patient and that's such a great strength. And I've known people like that, but I've also known that these people, I've, sometimes it's the hardest thing in the world for them to even dare confront another Christian for his or her sin. They just won't do it. They have this great strength of mercy, but they'll never say what they need to say to another believer who needs to hear the truth. You say, what's your point? The chapel, this church, has a strength, and I have benefited from it many times. That strength is how you all honor and love your pastors. And I have benefited from that. We all as pastors have benefited from that. But I wonder, and I just want to humbly submit to you, could it be that the chapel's greatest strength might be one of its weaknesses as well? That we have lifted up men? It's something to think about. It's something to pray about as this church moves forward. The best of men are men at best. And the greatest men of God have always lowered themselves all throughout redemptive history. The greatest men of God, you think of John the Baptist, right? Hey, 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 he must become greater, I must become less. Right, the greatest men and women of God always lower themselves. Or, or, or think of Daniel in Daniel chapter two, when all the wise men and all the enchanters and all these guys, the top officials in Babylon, they can't interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But God allows for Daniel to interpret that dream. And listen to what Daniel says. He says, as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be, may be known to the king. Listen, listen, Daniel had his chance. He had his chance to grab more power, to grab glory, to, to, for people to stand in wide-eyed amazement at him. He had his chance, but he blew it. He gave God the credit. It's not from me, he said. This came from the Lord. I'm not, I'm just a regular guy. Or think of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God, God gave the growth. And then listen to this. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. You're nothing. Wow. You're like, that doesn't make me feel very good. But that's what it says. It's in the text. He, I, I, we're nothing. We aren't anything. Josh Lyle isn't anything. Former leaders aren't anything. Your favorite radio preacher isn't anything. 
just servants by whom God chose to use as an instrument. That's all we are. That's all any of us are. If we allow people to think more of us than they should, we, we draw people to ourselves. And when people are drawn to us, they are not drawn to Christ. So we lower, we lower ourselves. Here's the next thing we do. The next feature of faithful, effective preaching is we exalt Christ. We lower ourselves and we exalt Christ. This is what Peter does all throughout the sermon. He says in verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. And now he starts to give Jesus the credit for what happens. And, and, and he, later in verse 16, it's, it's, it, he says it's because of Jesus and faith in the name of Jesus that this man has been healed. He calls Jesus the holy and the righteous one. He calls him in verse 15 the author of life. In verse 13, he calls him the servant, which is a messianic title. He, he talks about Jesus. He talks about Jesus in verse 5, verse 13, 14, 15, 16, 18, 20, 21, 22, 23, 25, 26. He mentions Jesus. Mentions, he talks about Jesus, preaches Jesus, proclaims Jesus. Paul, 1 Corinthians 1, 23, we preach Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is a, listen, it is a worthless sermon that does not make Jesus its subject. It is a worthless sermon that does not in some way connect our Savior to what it is that you are talking about. All sermons must do that. You say, well, Josh, why can't we just come to church and hear a sermon about loving one another? Is there anything wrong with that? Maybe I don't hear about Jesus. Maybe I don't hear about the cross. Just an exhortation to love one another. What's so bad about that? Scripture says we love because he first loved us. We can't love one another unless we see how much Christ loves us. You want to know how to love? Look at Christ. Look at what he did for you. You can't love unless you look at Christ. You say, what about a message about the Holy Spirit? I mean, I might preach a message about the Holy Spirit. Shouldn't we preach about the Holy Spirit? Yes, we should preach about the Holy Spirit. But the only reason the Holy Spirit was gifted to us so that we could have life and so that we could have power, the only reason he was gifted to us, Galatians says, is because Christ became a curse. Paul, you see how Paul connects Jesus to everything? He says in Galatians 3.14 that the promised Holy Spirit dwells in us because Christ became a curse for us. He died for us, he rose, and then he ascended, and when he ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit. He said, well, what about a sermon about money? Can't, can't we just hear a sermon about wise and generous giving and money and, and that be Okay. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and, and chapter 9, not now, but on your own sometime, and look at how Paul talks about money. He brings Christ into all of it. He says, Christ, Christ, he became poor that you might become rich. Christ became materially poor so that you might become spiritually rich, and that's how he motivates them to be generous. You can't learn to be generous 
and to be a good steward of God's money unless you look at Christ. What about a sermon about faith? Josh, why can't you just preach a sermon about David and Goliath and fear over faith or, or, or faith over fear, whatever? Why can't we just hear a sermon about that? Because we're not David. Christ is David in that story. We are the cowering Israelites in the corner saying, I'm not fighting that guy. I can't do that. And then Christ comes in and does for us what we are unable to do. And that is defeat our enemies. We can't defeat death. We can't defeat sin. We can't defeat Satan. Only Christ can chop off the head of Goliath. And that's the point of that story. It's all because of Christ. The manna in the wilderness, Christ. The rock that followed the Israelites that poured out water in the wilderness, 1 Corinthians 10 says that was Christ. The promised land, that's a symbol of Christ. Moses, he's a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of Christ. The tabernacle, that's Christ. John chapter one, he came and he pitched his tent, he tabernacled among us, the tabernacles. The, 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 the incense, the lampstand, and the showbread inside the tabernacle, what about that? Christ, Christ, Christ. It's all about Christ. Uh, Joseph, Christ. Boaz, Christ. Adam, Christ. First Corinthians 15 says that Jesus is the second Adam. The first Adam was a prefigurement, a, a, a type of the antitype who is Christ. The scapegoat, the, the sacrificial lamb, Christ. The ark that Noah was in, Christ. They were placed in the ark, spared from God's judgment, and brought to the new earth. God places you in Christ, spares you from God's judgment, and brings you to the new earth. The ark. The first fruits, Christ. The firstborn, Christ. The festivals, Christ. Melchizedek, Christ. Hebrews 7. The book of Psalms. Did you know that the book of Psalms, guess, guess what it's about? Christ, the blessed man of Psalm 1, the anointed king of Psalm 2, and then the rest of the Psalms are an explanation of that. The whole thing is about Christ, and if you don't understand that, many of the Psalms aren't gonna make sense to you. Deliver me, O God, because I have been perfectly righteous before you and blameless my whole life. David, Christ, the whole thing is about Christ. Spurgeon said this quote, listen carefully because it's a little hard to understand. Preach you Christ and Christ and Christ and Christ and nothing else but Christ. Never was a man blamed in heaven for preaching Christ too much. So we exalt Christ. The next thing we do, as Peter is our example, 
is we make sure that we convict people of sin. Convict of sin. That's what Peter does. We're gonna see this in just a moment. Peter masterfully convicts them of their sin. You say, can't I just encourage people? I'm an encourager. God has given me the gift of encouragement. Can't I just encourage people to come to Christ? Can't I just tell people of God's love? Why don't we just tell them about God's love? And, and then, then they'll, they'll, they'll be wooed to the gospel. Uh, it doesn't work like that. You gotta get our hands dirty if we're gonna be faithful and effective in our proclamation of the gospel. And that means saying the hard things. That means being like Peter. Look at what he says, verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him but you, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are all witnesses. You see how many times Peter says you? <laughs> Peter doesn't just say, hey, we're, we're all responsible for Christ and we're all, you know, we're, no, he says, you! You did it. You took the one who created you and gave you life and you killed him. The author of life you killed. And then he came to save you for doing that and you killed him. It's like a physician about ready to operate on you because you have a bad heart and you're about to die. And right before they put you under, you take the physician's scalpel and you stab the physician and you kill him. That's what you just did. That's what Peter says to them. You killed the author of life. And then Peter says, you know what? And you're worse. You are worse than the people who you think are the worst. The Gentiles. Pilate. I know you, Jew, I know you guys. I'm, Peter says, I'm your brother. I know how we all think. We hate the Gentiles. You hate Pilate. You think he's the worst of the worst. At least Pilate saw that Jesus was innocent and, and did not want to crucify him. And Pilate said to himself, you know what? I got him. Every year I release one prisoner. Surely they're not gonna ask for Barabbas. He was a murderer. Surely they're not gonna ask for a murderer to be released back into their society. They gotta ask for Jesus to, to let go. No. They chose a murderer to go back into their society rather than to have Jesus who had done nothing but heal people and love people and care for people. It's astounding. And then Peter says at the very end, and we saw you do it. <laughs> and we are all witnesses of what you did. Do you feel the conviction? Oh my goodness, I mean, we don't preach like this today. If Peter were around today, evangelicals would say, Peter, that's so unloving. 
That's so unloving the way that you just talk to them. Don't you know that you're gonna repel them from the gospel if you talk to them that way? It's so mean-spirited, Peter. Church, we are not just called to skillfully show the beauty of Christ to people. We are called to skillfully show the ugliness of man. We are not just called to preach the good news. We are called to preach the bad news. That judgment is coming because of your sin and because of your idolatry, because you ignored God, because you don't acknowledge him, because of you, because of what you've done. That's why this world is the way that it is. Not because of God, but because of you and me. We are called to skillfully do that. We are called, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.16, to not only be the aroma of life, but the aroma of death. Everyone wants to be the aroma of life. Who's willing to be the aroma of death? Who's willing to skillfully, graciously, humbly, convict people of their sin. You see, this is what Jesus was doing when he talked with the Samaritan woman, just as one more example. You remember the story of the Samaritan woman and and he says to the Samaritan woman, go, call your husband and tell him to come here. And the Samaritan woman says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, well, I know you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the husband that you are with right now, he's not your husband. We don't talk like this in the church today. The spouse that you have, that's not your spouse. What was Jesus doing? Did he delight in making her feel guilty? No, he was hitting a spiritual nerve in her. Getting to a place in her conscience where she would have to humble herself and admit that she's not as righteous as she thought that she was, so that she would cast herself upon the Savior for salvation. Because unless people see that they're guilty, why in the world would they need Jesus? If I think that I've lived a good enough life to go to heaven, why do I need Jesus? And so, The reason we convict of sin is not because we are righteous and and more righteous and hopefully not self-righteous. The reason we do it is out of love for them. And that's what Peter does here. And that's what we are to do as well. There's a final thing. Focus on faith. We lower ourselves, we exalt Christ. Convict of sin, emphasize spiritual need, and we focus on faith. Look at verse 16. In his name, by faith in his name, he made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. There is a progression of thought here that is absolutely critical for every Christian to understand just in this one verse. Here's the first point. 
The name of Jesus healed this man. The name, the name. What is the name of Jesus? The word of God, the word. John 17, six says this. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Jesus is not saying, hey, hey, I came down to earth and God, I told you, uh, I, I did what you told me to do. I told them your name. Your name is, God's name is Yahweh. That's not what he meant. I gave them your word. Father, you spoke to me your word and I manifested that word to them. So when we talk about the name of God, we are talking about the word of God. Do not take his name in vain. Do not receive his word in vain. Pray in the name of Jesus. That means to pray in accordance with everything that's in the word of God. So when we are talking about the name of God, the name of Jesus, we're talking about the word, the revelation of God. And that, that is what creates and that is what recreates. And that's what Peter is saying here. The word of God in the beginning was there and created the world, but the word of God also recreates and it takes beggars with their, who are lame and it recreates. So the word of God creates and the word of God recreates and Peter is saying that's what happened here. Jesus, the word of God, recreated this man's ankles and legs. That's the first thing. The second thing that he wants to show them is, is but it's not just by the word. Because a lot of people hear the word, but it does them no good. It's through faith in the word. That's what it goes on to say. It's through faith in the name, faith in the name of Jesus that healed this man. Now, there's a lot of, who, who, who had the faith here? Peter, did Peter have the faith to heal this man? Did the beggar have the faith to heal this man? I don't think it really matters. It could have been the beggar who had the faith. It could have been Peter who had the faith to heal this man. It, it just The text just simply says through faith in his name. It doesn't say through my faith. It doesn't say through the beggar's faith. It just says through faith this man was healed. So that's important to understand. It's also important to understand that this has nothing to do with modern faith healing, that if you just muster up enough faith, then God will heal you. That's not the point of this passage. That's not what's going on here. The only thing that God expects you to believe, if you get sick and you get cancer, the only thing that God expects you to, to have faith in and trust in is that he is able and willing to heal you. Not that he will for sure. Because you need special revelation from God to know that. And the only special revelation, unless you're an apostle, and I think they died out in the first century, the only special revelation that we have from God is through scripture. God expects us to believe everything that's in scripture. But if you get sick, he expects you to only have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faith. Do you know what faith that is? Right before they are thrown into the fire, they said this, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand. In other words, 
In other words, we might die in this fire, but even if we die, we'll be delivered. But if not, can you say that? You have to say those three words in your Christian life. But if not, my God is able to heal me. My God is able to help me in this situation. But if not, I won't bow down to your idols. I won't sacrifice my faith. I won't give up my faith. He's able, he's willing, and even if I die, I'll be delivered. But even if he doesn't heal me physically, I will not sacrifice my faith. I will not give up my faith. The point here is that faith must be combined with the word for salvation. The word alone is not enough. It must be combined with faith. That's the point of Hebrews 4.1. Talks about the Israelites. They heard the message, but it did them no good because they did not combine it or share it with faith. And so we have faith and we emphasize faith. However, there's a third thing that Peter adds, third and final thing, and then we're done. The word of God healed you, but it was through faith in the word that this man was healed. And then a third thing, it was through Jesus. Look at what the text says. And it was the faith that is through Jesus that he has healed this man. In other words, Jesus was the one who provided the faith for the person to be healed. Whether it was the beggar who had faith or whether it was Peter who had the faith, it doesn't matter. Peter's point is that Jesus provided the faith for the healing to occur. You say, no, 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 no. <laughs> Listen, Jesus didn't just come to show us that we can't save ourselves by our own good works. Jesus came to show us that we can't save ourselves by our own faith. You say, that's blasphemy. That's unbiblical. There are many people in the Bible, in the Gospels, who had faith. And because they had faith, they were saved. Yes, but my point is, is that God is the one who provided them the faith to be saved. That's why faith is called a gift in Ephesians chapter 2. For faith is the gift of God. Acts 5.31, listen to this one, you're still not convinced. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance and faith to Israel. To give it to Israel. Still not convinced? 2 Timothy 2.25 says that faith is something that is granted to us. Granted to us. Or think about when Peter, Jesus, Jesus says, who do you think that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, right? And every, all the other disciples, wow, that's some great faith there, Peter. And, and I imagine Jesus, that's some great faith there, Peter, that was given to you from your heavenly Father above. The reason you know that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God, and you have faith in it is because of God revealed it to you. All throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites failed to believe. Jesus came to save us, not just from our bad deeds, 
but from our unbelief. That's why the man in Luke chapter 9 who's demon-possessed son, and Jesus says to the man, all things are possible for those who believe. I believe. Mm. Yeah, no, there were plenty of moments in my life when I haven't believed. In fact, having a demon-possessed son really has tested my faith because he keeps throwing himself into the fire. And I've struggled in my faith. And so I think what happens here is the man gets excited when Jesus says all things are possible for those who believe. And he says, I believe. And then boom, it hits him. And then he says, help my unbelief. Why do we pray for faith if faith isn't given to us? Faith is given to us as a gift from God. And so here's my question to end everything this morning. Where are you in your struggle to believe? Are you struggling to believe that God will provide for all of your needs in Christ Jesus? Philippians chapter four, my God will provide for all of your needs. Are you struggling to believe Romans? He works all things together for the good of those who love him. He's, this is not good what's happening to me. Are you struggling to believe that? Are you struggling to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross to save you from your sins? Are you struggling to believe that he rose from the dead and he now has ascended into heaven and he one day will come back to judge the earth and you're, you're almost there? You know a lot of people who believe it. You know there's something to it, but you're not quite there. You can't. Here's the good news. Jesus will give you the faith to believe. And the faith that is through Jesus has healed this man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, release faith. Provide faith in this room faith to believe that you will provide, faith to believe that you will come through, faith to believe that you are who you said that you are in your word, the scriptures. My heart, my heart bleeds for the person who, who, who is almost there this morning. They're struggling to believe, like it's just so hard. Just humbly go before God and ask him, ask him, to give you the faith to trust him and he will do it Father help us to become effective faithful proclaimers of your word in your name Amen This has been a message from the chapel Thanks for joining us today For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses including Akron, Green, Wadsworth Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls Nordonia and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.